Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and him, Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Although I have to say, Kieran, it's a beautiful, crisp, chilly Sunday morning. I think probably only 50% of us think that football's a beautiful game just at the moment. <laughs> I, th- I think you're you're absolutely right, yes. I, I've been focused uh, on my birthday cake. Uh, the Baroness got me a giant Colin the Caterpillar birthday oh. cake, which apparently uh, is enough for 35 people. Uh, but the trouble is no, nobody apart from me wanted to eat it. So I'm sort of, I'm, I'm working my way through it. And, and, and the fear is it's taking me so long, it, it, it'll turn into a butterfly before I actually finish the damn thing. <laughs> Other cakes are available. Um, it's questions day, Kieran, but we do have one big news story to discuss first and one big apology to our next door neighbours who are probably still wondering why we both shouted bollocks so loudly on Wednesday afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Literally minutes after we finished recording, Roman Abramovich announced his intention to sell Chelsea and write off the £1.5 billion that they owe him. Um, We've had a lot of people, Kieran, asking how that might affect FFP, him writing off that loan or those loans. Yes. Well, in terms of the loan, uh, because the loan's a balance sheet item, it it doesn't impact upon either uh, income or cost. So it has zero impact on financial fair play. So so Chelsea, who have racked up some significant losses in recent years, they they won't be able to use this to to reset the dial um, as far as the FFP uh, issues are concerned. But I, I think... What he said and what he didn't say uh, in in the press release was was just as important. Whilst yeah. we've got his daughter going on social media saying this is Putin's war, and you know she yeah. she appears to be fairly uh, on, on on the side of uh, uh, of anti-Putin. Um, it was a very ambivalent comment uh, that came from Roman Abramovich's press release. It, it said that the net proceeds of the sale would go to helping the victims of uh, of the war and let's let's not call it a conflict it is a war yeah uh, and um I, I think that that raises a few questions first of all what exactly is meant by net proceeds presumably uh, issues in terms of stamp duty lawyers fees accountants fees are they being deducted he says that the loan um he's going to absorb uh so uh, you know, if that is the case, then the asking price, and I've heard this from a few senior sources, is three billion pounds. Wow! I, I think I think that's I think that's a bit pushy myself because um, the, the issue with Chelsea is Stamford Bridge. They, they are they are hemmed in by uh, other other neighbours who are very rich and very litigious. So the chances of getting uh, the opportunity to expand uh, Stamford Bridge are, are 
pretty slim in, in my view, um, and also would take years to get through the courts because the neighbours would use uh, would use ev- every vehicle in their book to to uh, delay things. Um, so therefore, if Chelsea wants to compete with Manchester United, who've got a capacity of seventy four thousand, with Liverpool, who are moving to sixty thousand, you've got Arsenal, uh, Spurs, and West Ham all at sixty thousand. Uh, Manchester City, mid-50s, potentially going to 60. Newcastle's new owners are talking about expanding. They're going to have to move. And you, know, you, you live in London. I, I was born in London. There's not many pieces of ground. Yeah, there's not many pieces of free land where people say, oh, yeah, that looked nice for a, you know, a, a 60,000 capacity football stadium. And, of course, land in London is very expensive. So it's, it's going to cost you a, a billion and a half probably to to build a new stadium. To, to the size required. Um, and then Chelsea fans might feel that it's, you know, it's, if it's far away from what they're used to, is, is it genuinely Chelsea? So I think, I think there's, there are issues. Why, why pay £3 billion for a company that doesn't make money and a company which is going to have to relocate its biggest asset? And it's interesting, Kieran, because you valued Palace recently, or you said Palace's value was somewhere between sort of 220, 240 million. And we're a mid-ranking, we're a mid-ranking Premier League club. So three billion, three billion for a, for a, a, a team, as you say, sort of stuck at Stamford Bridge for the near future, without that much opportunity to to make more money. That's a that's a hefty price, Kieran, isn't it? Even by Russian oligarch standards. That's right. And and then you've got to ask yourself, who would want to buy it? So are there other Ultra high net worth individuals who who fancy a slice of the Premier League pie, yes, there are, and we've already seen uh, a few names being mentioned. There's a there's the 86 year old Swiss billionaire. There's some people in in the states who are billionaires as well who own uh, US franchises. So could they be interested? Yes, possibly. Uh, could we have another sovereign wealth fund uh, arrive in? The Premier League, you know, we, we've got uh, we, we've got UAE at City. We, we clearly we've got the issues now with uh, PIF at Newcastle, Qatar uh, in Paris. Could it be from the Middle East or perhaps you know the likes of Brunei, where, where, where you know where the, the, the Sultan there might decide that he he wants the kudos of of yeah. owning Chelsea. And, and Chelsea are a very attractive proposition in the sense regularly compete in the Champions League present. Pre, pre, present Champions League holders, FIFA World Cup club, but three billion pounds. Certainly on all of the on all of the spreadsheet models that I that I've worked on in the past few days, it that doesn't make any sense. So you'd you'd have to pay a huge vanity premium for it. Um and uh you know Jim Ratcliffe who's who's Britain's richest man says uh, there will be a mug who will pay two or three billion pounds <laughs> For a football club, possibly, mm. but that mug's not me. Mm. Um, and, and he went off and he, and he bought a, a, a club in France for a, yeah, about a twentieth of that. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I think it's it's an ambitious price, shall we say? It's interesting as well, Kieran, because historically, one of the only reasons Chelsea exists at Stamford Bridge is because back at the turn of the nineteenth, uh, twentieth century, uh, a very charismatic entrepreneur built Stamford Bridge assuming that one of the existing London clubs would happily uh, rent it off him and move in, and no one was interested. So he had to form his own team, essentially. Um, and one final thing here, and we, we, I think we have to say this, those Chelsea fans who sang Abramovich's name 
during the minutes applause for Ukraine yesterday had 90 minutes in which they could have done that. Yeah, uh, Choosing to do it in that time was uh, wrong. And I'm, I'm pleased that Thomas Tuchel uh, accepted that as well. Um, I thought it was very good that Thomas Tuchel criticised those few Chelsea fans that did it. All right, on to the questions, Kieran. And, and uh, there's a few a few more light-hearted questions in there than there are news stories, let's put it this way. So um, one in particular I don't understand, but I, I'm sure you will help me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will help me. I actually think that most weeks, Kieran. I very rarely say it out loud. But anyway. um, Zach Dalton asks our first question. And Zach says, what are the rules regarding a player being released from his contract when he retires. For example, could a player agree a new contract for an increased wage if the club wants to secure him for a few more seasons when all along the player planned to retire after one season but decided to ask for a new deal or accept a new deal for a final payday? If a player wants to retire, is there anything the club can do to keep them contracted and playing? I suppose, Kieran, the answer is that clubs won't offer a 31-year-old player a three-year contract unless they're managed by Harry Redknapp or Sam Allardyce. <laughs> I don't know what you could possibly mean there, <laughs> Kevin. don't know what you could possibly I, mean. I'm, I'm just saying, if you historically, they, they tend to buy <laughs> experienced players in the, in the bid to keep the club up. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, well, I asked uh, our good friend of the show, Jonathan Booker, uh, with relation to this, because clearly he's he's a, he's a man that's looked after the interests of his clients, uh, having been an agent. Um, and I think Jonathan's view, which is broadly uh, the same as sort of my first reaction, was if, if a player wants to retire, then then that's a personal choice. Um, but the chances are that the the club will retain the player's registration for the remaining period of the the contract. Right. So this is this is to stop. Uh, let's say that we do sign a, a three or four year contract at the age of thirty one, uh, and then announce twelve months later, oh, that's it. I've had enough. Um, and every everybody gets your final cheer, and then three months later, you you rock up at another club. And you say, I've, I've come out of retirement. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so, so the the uh, registration would be maintained by the original club. Now, it would possibly allow the player to to compete in amateur football, you know, provided there's no evidence of him being paid. He could go and play for a local park side. Chances are, you, you would get away with that. Um, if, but if he did choose to come back, then compensation would have to be paid. Uh, to to the original club, to mm-hmm. his to his former club, by uh, the professional club that he ended up playing for. Right. So um, yeah, that's that's to protect the club. Um, and often, what we do see is that if a player does announce retirement, and, and you know, we, we've seen people like Gary Neville just said, "I just realised I couldn't." You know, he 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 got. He got absolutely roasted, didn't he, at Stoke, and then decided to hang up his boots yeah. because he, he felt he couldn't maintain the standard to which he ex, he himself expected to be able to deliver. Um, if, if that is the case, quite often what the club will say is, "We want you to carry on in a, in a different role, you know, an ambassadorial role, perhaps move into coaching, um, and that, uh, that that's that helps to protect the player as well." Yeah, the player player might you know, and people talk a lot about football players being in it just for the money. They, they football players start off because they love football. Uh, you know, you, you didn't you, you didn't if you you didn't start a comedy career because you hated jokes, did you? You, you, you no. were, it's just it's counterintuitive. You know, I why did I go into teaching? Because I love the thought of teaching, and mm. you. you 
you might you might hate it after a few years and, and decide to go on elsewhere, but nobody starts in football because of a hatred of football and, and wanting to hang up their boots. Um, so uh, I think the, the club would be protected and the player potentially will be able to earn uh, a, a different salary and a different role. Um, and that could be embedded into a contract, especially if it's if it's a more senior player. Yeah, I, I don't tell jokes, Kieran. I, I tell finely crafted routines. I mean, for, <laughs> right. uh, also, the thing is with, with footballers as well, who are most unfairly criticised bunch of people, most of them have to be drag kicking and screaming into retirement because they still love playing football at the age of 35 as much as they did at the age of 18, 19. It's, it's an awful thing. When people don't realise they've still got half their working life ahead of them. And they can't do the thing that they love doing the most, as well, of course, as, as missing the whole dressing room environment, which is another big issue. Um, our next question comes from Chris Dobson, and it, uh, I'll give a bit of context to overseas listeners at the end of the question. But Chris Dobson says, I'm a groundhopper, and as a Yorkshireman, I love a good deal. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about it. I remember my cousin Charles from Bradford in the Porson's Arms a couple of years ago saying to Bev, how bloody much? I want to buy a pint. I want to buy a pint, not the pub. Which she <laughs> was uh, now, Chris says going to a Premier League or EFL game is expensive, so it's nice to see that some teams host under twenty three games in their main stadium. Now, for example, a league game at Wigan would cost twenty three pound, but two days later, an under twenty three game was three pounds. So you can see the appeal. Um, my question is: apart from a good experience for the young players, plus a cheap day out for families. What's the financial impact for the clubs hosting those matches at their league grounds? Now, I should explain to some of our overseas listeners, as I said, what ground hopping is. Um, it is, I think, a uniquely British phenomenon where you see a game at all 92 league grounds and work your way down the pyramid like some football archaeologist until you find yourself swimming to the Silly Isles for a pre-season friendly. <laughs> um, they are very competitive people. Approach them with caution. Yes. And only, only if you have a few hours listening time to spare. Um, <laughs> it, it's a fair point, though, from Chris. Uh, Palace played a couple of under-20 cup games uh, earlier this season, end of last season, big pardon, and, and got 67,000 people in. So it, it, does it make financial sense for them to play games there rather than the academy where there'd be 30 people watching? Um, I, I don't think there's a huge amount of financial benefit. Uh, it, it is mainly to, first of all, to allow the the players to get a, a sense of what it is yeah. like to to you know, to play at Selhurst or or to play at the uh, Wigan Stadium. And yeah, you know, we've seen uh, we've seen in women's football, uh, you know, many of the women's teams don't play at the, the host stadium, but you know, once or twice a season they will do. Uh, and I think it's you know, as we said, we were talking footballers. Love football, and Ooh. and it still is a dream to to actually kick a football in a football stadium. My my last ever f- game of football, I played at the Amex Stadium. Wow. I came on for ten minutes. I was absolutely dreadful, but I it cost me fifteen hundred quid for the privilege. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd raised money for charity, and I thought I've not put enough money in it. So I, I, so I, yeah, but I can say that I've played at a football ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so. Um, you know, it, you, you can see it from from the player's point of view. You're absolutely right. You are going to get a, a bigger attendance. Is it likely to to make money? The chances are not, because the costs of hosting 
at a at a ground tend to be quite significant. You you've got the setup costs, you've got the turnstiles, you're going to have to clean the changing rooms. Um, so you've got, you've got the physical financial costs, and, and then you've got what we might refer to as, as the opportunity costs. As I'm sure you've you've interviewed these guys, and I've I've met one or two groundsmen are extremely protective mm, about oh, the hallowed turf. Oh yes. Um, and therefore, you know, if they had their way, there would be no matches taking place, including the first team, over the full 365 days, and they can just concentrate on mowing the grass. Um, but they know that the, you know, they, they, they accept that the first team have to play there. They don't want any more to take place than that. Um, so, um, you know, we've, we've seen the improvement in the quality of football pitches, because you and I, are both old enough to remember those matches in the 70s where football took place on rolled mud. Yeah. And that, that's that's what we accepted uh, because we knew no different. But but what we've now got is far slicker, far far truer uh, surfaces. And the groundsman would say, well, you know, the reason for this is I'm allowed to effectively have, you know, seven to ten days between most matches to, to prepare. Um, and therefore they don't want too many alternative uses um of the pitch um and i think that would be a driving force and also you know from the club's point of view they're, they're fully aware that if if the pitch is less than perfect then then the performance is less than perfect as well mm. uh, speaking of women's football uh, kieran i don't often plug other people's pods but a friend of mine sent me a link to uh, a thing called durham rawcast last night which is a new podcast about durham women's football team uh, and as it happened, I'll, I'll be honest, the telly was on the blink last night, so I thought, well, I will listen to it. And it was very good. It's very interesting. But Durham women are one of the few teams not affiliated to to uh, um, a men's team. Yeah. So it strikes me that that might be an interesting subject for us to talk about at some stage as well. Um, uh, it's a very good pod, by the way. Uh, our next question comes from Dave Tucker. Um, and there seems to be a couple of Arsenal fans unhappy sneaking in questions under the under the radar, disguised as normal questions that are actually criticisms of Arsenal. Um, and Dave says, what would attendances have to drop to at Arsenal for them to stop making a profit on match days? Um, Dave's about to clutch at an enormous straw here, by the way. Um, <laughs> Dave says, I appreciate the TV revenue is huge, but they would surely notice it if match day income dropped. I say this because if the Cronkies' finances suffer, they may just want out. And hopefully they won't be around for long. Be careful what you wish for, Dave. But um, mm. I, I, I imagine, Kieran, they could be playing in front of nobody and still making money, couldn't they? Um, not, not quite. Arsenal generate more money from ticket sales, or sorry, a greater proportion of money from ticket sales than any other club okay. in the Premier League. So, so in, in 2019, which is the last year that we have pre-COVID and, and from which we can therefore extract what I would call reliable data, Arsenal generated 24% of their income from, from ticket sales. Now, that contrasts with the likes of you know, Burnley, Huddersfield, Bournemouth at the time, who were, who were getting 4%. So um, it, 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 is, uh, it, it is significant. Um, but Arsenal, even though they had uh, you know, full capacity at all matches, were still losing money on a day-to-day basis, um, uh, e- even though the, the, the Emirates was, was you know, 60,000 sellouts each week. So... Unfortunately, you know, any reduction in uh, in ticket sales, Dave, would have an impact upon the, the Arsenal's finances. And the reason for this 
is Arsenal have stopped competing in the Champions League uh, for quite a few years. So that's probably hit them uh, somewhere in in the region of 40 to 50 million pounds a year. Um, And what we have seen during that period is that Arsenal's wage bill has has dropped significantly behind that of its peer group. Um, And and I yeah, that that has an impact upon performance because you know, I've got no issue, as, as I've said on many occasions, with regards to players' wages. But ultimately, football is a talent game, and the, the best talent gets paid the highest wages by those willing to pay those highest wages. Arsenal no longer at the top tier of playing wages, and I think that might be uh, a, a consideration for Arsenal fans: is that are you actually you know? cutting off your nose to spite your face. If, if you stop attending matches, that means there's less money to pay the wages, which means that the club becomes less competitive, which means it can't get into the top four positions, which generate the additional money to to make Arsenal um, on, on a level playing field with uh, the clubs that they consider to be their peer group. Our next question comes from Jack Thompson. And Jack Thompson says, if a player gets in trouble after moving clubs for a significant transfer fee, are the clubs insured or can they go after the player personally? I I would guess, Kieran, that the selling club would have no responsibility, would they, unless they were aware that there was trouble coming up? Yeah, it's, it's sold as seen. Uh, you know, it, it's a bit like yeah. if you if you uh, if my uncle Terry sold you a car, um, you you just have mm-hmm. to accept what you get. But in terms of <laughs> historic uh, positions, we we take ourselves back to a, a, a good a good friend of the show, Adrian Mutu, who, who who pops up on quite a regular basis. He does. Um, Chelsea signed uh, Adrian Mutu, who was a, I think it's a Romanian international. Yep. They paid uh, around about 15, 16 million pounds for him. You know, he was, he was seen as a pretty, pretty useful striker. Um, Adrian had a few off-field issues, <laughs> um, which, uh, which involved uh, South American products, shall we say. And, um, on, on the basis of that, uh, Chelsea ended up sacking him. He was he was suspended from football, and then they tried to sue him on a personal basis for the the money that they'd spent, and also the money that they'd effectively had to spend to um, replace him. And I think they replaced him with Sean Wright Phillips, and and they used the the fee paid for Sean Wright Phillips as the basis for establishing the amount of compensation that they were due to to get from Adrian Mutu. And when it went to court, Chelsea won the case. Now, whether they ever got the money, I'm, I'm not sure. That that was all yeah, that's all a private settlement. But um yeah, I think they would have felt felt vindicated that they'd signed Adrian Mutu in good faith and his uh, his behavioural issues um warranted some form of financial compensation. Uh, our next question comes from Larkin Hogel. Uh, who I believe is one of our regular Australian listeners, uh, a country in mourning, of course, after the loss of one of the greatest cricketers ever. Larkin says, in light of your discussion about the number of clubs in Scottish football, do you have any thoughts on the ideal number of clubs per population? Here are some quick calculations. Open brackets, done in a pub on a napkin, so please excuse poor rounding. <laughs> Close brackets. Yes, <laughs> That's pretty much how I write the script, Larkin. So I, I forgive you. Kieran may be a little bit more hard about the rounding, but there you go. Um, and Larkin says, so in Germany it works out pretty much that there's one professional football club per 1.5 million people. In Spain it's one per 1.6 million people. In Italy, there's one club per 1 million people. 
In England and Wales, it's one per 650,000. In Scotland, it's one per 130,000. Mm. Ideally, says Larkin, as many clubs as possible should, of course, be allowed to play. But what if it's simply not sustainable in the long term? I mean, I suppose you could argue in England and Scotland, it's been sustainable pretty much since 1880. So, you know, COVID allowing, it, there's no reason why it shouldn't sort of carry on being sustainable, should it? Yeah, well, well, first of all, you know, top work, Larkin, top, uh, you know, <laughs> top, top napkin work. I, I say, I'm, I'm very impressed by this. Um, I, I think if you're going to do an analysis, one of the things you need to take into consideration, he, I, I know what Larkin's done. He looked at the number of teams in the senior leagues, but in Scotland. It, once you drop out of the uh, the Premiership and, and into the Championship, you you then start to enter the realms of some of the clubs who are already part time. Yeah, and then when you drop into the bottom two divisions of Scotland, they're practically all part time. So so that helps sustainability, um, and also uh, because we are now into March, uh, we, we're entering uh, peak uh, financial reporting. Season, so I've I've been in spreadsheet heaven practically <laughs> every day this week. Uh, I'm getting these emails from Company's House, and uh, anybody who's the misfortune to to follow my Twitter account will know that it do- it doesn't matter whether it's Albion Rovers or or Arsenal. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 out there uh, putting out numbers, and, and what we are seeing um, in in Scottish football is almost all of those lower league Scottish clubs are reporting that they're breaking even or making a small profit. Now, mm. part of this is is due to the utilisation of the, the furlough scheme. Um, part of this is also down to the incredible benevolence of uh, James Anderson, who is a who is a Scottish football fan who decided to help Scottish football. And, yeah. and he's, he's effectively put, uh, given grants uh, to practically everybody there, and, and those smaller clubs have benefited. So... My my observation of, of Scottish lower league football in recent years is the clubs are actually very, very sensible. They they know that they can't compete with the big boys and therefore they don't try to compete with the big boys and they just get on with it. Um and, and they and they set budgets accordingly. And and that and, and thing is being sustainable is it means not living beyond your means, knowing how much money you've got coming in and then setting your level of expenditure accordingly. What we have in English football, especially in the championship, is we want to get to the Premier League. This is how much we think it's going to cost us. And you ignore the fact that that amount of money is twice as much as the money you're bringing in. And that, so um, I think the mindset of Scottish football is, is far more logical, it's far more sensible, and it's far more sustainable. So in, in terms of, of his question, I sort of, I sort of flip it over. Um, I think all of these countries can survive and thrive with the existing number of clubs that they have, provided they just act with a bit of common sense. Mm. I, I, I've spoken to a lot of Scottish football fans over the years because I've spent a lot of time in Scotland. And it's strange, the, the ones that – ants is not the right word because Scottish football fans in general – they're a philosophical and funny bunch of people, but <laughs> you know, Hibs fans can be a bit antsy because they are they're a big club, but they know they still can't compete with the biggest clubs. But when yep. when you talk to fans of clubs lower down, Queen of the South, for example, I spoke to a Queen of the South fan recently. There's an attitude that they know they 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 probably never get into the Scottish Premier League. They might get in the Championship if they're lucky, so they're actually quite happy. 
just being in existence, just competing, they 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 have a bit of credibility. The fans of those clubs think that they're they're proper fans in the way that some of the big Scottish club fans aren't. They just quite happy dimbling along's not right, but just knowing that they've got a club to support and trying to do as well as possible in the league they're in, and that's that's an attitude that keeps you much saner at night than constantly looking at the Premier League table, thinking we could we could finish ninth here. It's yeah. it's you know it's it seems to me that football's a, a happier place for some of those Scottish fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not married to a supermodel, but I, I don't I don't go to sleep being jealous about it every night. I've I've got the Baroness, and I'm I'm still punching well above my weight there. So so yeah, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. Be be happy with what you got. Yeah, we we are very very fortunate. Yeah, well, the Baroness Kieran, I I know she doesn't listen, but she's not far short of supermodel Kieran. Really, let's face <laughs> it. Uh, as is Ali, of course, of course. Um, who doesn't listen to the pod, but is only three yards away. <laughs> possibly paying attention our next question comes from Andy Barker and Andy Barker says Leeds surprisingly sold Niall Hewins apologies if I've got that pronunciation wrong um, to Sunderland on a free transfer they did insert a sell-on clause um, and Andy says that Niall is an excellent prospect so if he progresses and a big club comes in for him, could Sunderland adopt a pragmatic approach and accept a lower fee but a higher sell-on clause in order to potentially get more money if he goes to a bigger club still? And is there anything Leeds could do to prevent this? Yes, um, I, and I imagine Leeds will have done this, and I suspect this is fairly standard. What will happen is Leeds will say that uh, as far as the sell-on clause is concerned, they are entitled to, let's say it's 20%. Mm. They are entitled to 20% of everything that Sunderland receive in respect of the sale of no. Niall Hewins. So that could be 20% of the initial fee plus 20% of any add-ons uh, should that player be sold again and therefore Sunderland uh, get a share of that. So so um, I think I would imagine that's fairly standard. I, I don't see the, the small print of uh, contracts, but I, I think it would be fairly remiss of, of any club to selling to 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 not uh, to not try to future proof any particular deals. I think the the one concern that some clubs do have is what happens if uh, he he moves on as part of a swap deal. Now, yeah, then then I, I don't know how those calculations would be made, if at all. Um, but that that is something to to to, to be uh, that would be of interest. Um, we're, we're hoping to have um, an agent come on the show uh, in in a few weeks, um, and he's agreed to uh, uh, do an ask the agent uh, oh, session. Nice so yeah. so uh, once once we've got a date sorted, we'll we'll let listeners know, um, and, and that means that me, me and you can just sit there with a cup of tea and uh, <laughs> and listen to him. <laughs> have, to, have, to, have to have to put up with all the heat. And- it's an interesting point for Mandy, though, about Sunderland's approach. You because know, it's it's sort of a risky one, but you can you can sort of see his his point of view that they yeah. take a gamble that he he will become an even better player, so they will move him on with a with a higher sell on clause to see if that happens, as against taking a higher fee now. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's a calculated gamble, yeah, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, and also going back to what we were talking about earlier, these young kids want to play football. Yeah, and if if he's if he's if we're realistic and he's he's not going to be breaking into the the first team squad and he's going to be frustrated because he's in the under twenty threes playing in PL two and and so on, then 
it's better for him potentially on both a short and a long-term basis that he's, he's gets the opportunity to play in League One, uh, which yeah, the, the standards still still damn good, of um, and to, uh, to 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 be up against professionals every week who who are fighting for every ball because uh, yeah, their bonuses are, are, are linked to it, and you know Sunderland are trying to get promoted. I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Luke Hatherley has our next question. And Luke Hatherley says, Forest, Nottingham Forest, that a stupid amount of managers in a short space of time recently, <laughs> uh, although they seem to have settled on a good one at the moment. What's been the cost of these managers to the club? Right. Um, I've, I've been into Forest's accounts over the course of the last decade, um, and they do not show separately the uh, amount of money that's spent. And should they have to do this? Uh, from a nosiness point of view, I would say yes. Um, <laughs> how, about I, from, I, how about from a legal point of view, Kieran? But from a legal point of view, um, it's it's questionable. Um, under the accounting rules, you are supposed to show any what's referred to as exceptional costs, and exceptional is is normally sort of you know is is it going to change the dials in terms of the numbers? So. Um, Forrest might say that the numbers aren't actually that big, but what, what I did find out is, uh, and, and what what did surprise me um, was that over the course of the last decade, you know, so we often talk about football clubs, especially in the Championship, and, and you know, Forrest have been a uh, you know, pretty much a hardy perennial of, of, of the Championship mm. for for a number of years. Um, over the course of the last decade, Nottingham Forest have generated one hundred and ninety six million pounds in revenue, and they have spent. 293 million on wages alone. So included wow. in that 293 million pounds will be the payoffs to managers. But this this goes back to what we've just been talking about in respect of Scottish football. It's not sustainable in the English Championship and somebody is signing off on those budgets at the start of every season and saying, "Yeah, yeah, this year yeah, we'll 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 aim to go and spend no more than 160 pounds on wages for every 100 pounds get in." And they all sit around and they nod. And, and nobody is is playing the role of Jiminy Cricket and going. Mm. This this is daft, boys. You know, you, you you're you're not making any sense. Um, and if we can get a collective decision to to try to live within the means, as we've seen, and and yeah, we, we've spoken to people like Andy Holt and, and Mark Palios and uh, you know some of the other club owners and executives, and they say, well, we're simply not prepared to do it. We're we're we'll accept a little bit of a loss. But the levels of losses that clubs are incurring in the championship uh, are, are just crazy. I, I know that Pinocchio, of course, is based on a, an Italian book, but Jiminy Cricket has to be one of the most annoying characters in any Disney film ever, doesn't he? 
and I loved I love Disney films. I'm a, uh, early Disney films, one of my big passions. But Jiminy Cricket, shut up. Just let the boy have some fun while he's while he's not made of wood. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so can I just can I just clarify there, Kieran? So the the money that Forrest have paid on getting rid of managers, yeah, compensation, etc. That's that's gone down under the ra- w- wages. Yeah, yeah, it, it 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 tends to be included in the wage bill because it's uh, quite quite a lot of the time what will happen, and I don't know whether this is the case uh, for Forest, is that they they simply pay the manager on a monthly basis rather than necessarily giving them a a full settlement immediately, which could be bad for cash flow. They just say, well, you still got eighteen months left on your contract. We'll we'll pay you what's due to you each month, and uh, and and just get on with it. So it's it tends to be quite often included within within the the payroll costs. We know, Kieran, that producer Guy is a big fan of putting these questions together using the William Burroughs cut-up technique, which is how David, <laughs> how David Bowie wrote some of his early songs by basically cutting out loads of words from a newspaper, throwing them up in the air and seeing what order they come out in. But as it happens, Luke's question leads quite nicely into the next question. Um it's not Here comes a BAFTA. Here comes a BAFTA. This could be the moment, Kieran, couldn't it? Because the wild, the wild segues must be one of the reasons that BAFTA <laughs> is paying no notice. Um, <laughs> Andy Cook's question is, when a manager is sacked, they receive some sort of financial payout of their contract. Is it literally the pay that would be due for the remainder of the contract? And is that payout negotiated up front as a termination clause, or are the clubs allowed to unilaterally terminate the contract as long as they pay the remainder of the money? Um, it, it, it does vary, uh, according to, um, circumstance. So if, if we take the case of David Moyes and Manchester United, um, David Moyes, I think he signed a six year contract, mm. uh, because he was very much Sir Alex's chosen man. Yeah. Um, and he was sacked, uh, about eight months, uh, into the season and what it is uh, supposedly to be the case, and, and I've not seen the contract, but I'm, I'm only going on what I've heard from um, some people within the game, is that there was a clause in the contract which says, should Manchester United fail to qualify for the Champions League, then Manchester United do not have to pay up the full remainder of the contract. This was, this would be, I think it was in the first year or the second yeah. year. They don't have to pay up the full amount. They only have to give him 12 months compensation. Now, Manchester United, uh, I think they drew or lost a match on the Sunday, and then they, they sacked him 24 hours later. So the club was effectively waiting for the period of time when it could save their money by sacking him, uh, even though that there was a lot of pressure on the board to have sacked him earlier. So sometimes what's driving these decisions is these particular clauses. Um, in general, what clubs tend to do is that they, they do pay up for the remainder of the contract because the League Managers Association um, has advisors. Uh, you know, the, 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 point, the point about signing a three- or four-year contract is to provide security on both sides. First of all, the club gets security that if your manager is headhunted, you say, well, we need compensation because there's still three years remaining on his contract. Um, and also the manager uh, who, who might have been attracted from elsewhere, he, he uh, should should have some form of protection through having a fixed-term contract. So, so um, what tends to happen is the, there, w- there will be a clause which says you will get all of your basic wage up until the remainder of your contract, or there will be a set sum uh, agreed in the contract uh, that goes to the manager uh, linked to 
the, the remaining the remaining years and months that they're outstanding. Our final question, Kieran, comes from Sam Watson. Um, and Sam has an interesting take on a subject we've discussed a lot lately. Sam says, when West Ham played Dinamo Zagreb in the Europa League, our usual sponsor, Betway, was not on the front of our shirt. In all the other games so far, their name has been. Are gambling sponsors banned in certain countries? Was that the reason? And if so, how does that affect the contract with the sponsor? I assume there are bonuses for a team getting into Europe when negotiating for shirt sponsors, and therefore West Ham might be losing out, or will Betway have fronted up more money for less game? Um, th- there there are um, some industries which, under the UEFA rules, cannot be advertised on the front of shirt. Um, and these these are mainly, first of all, tobacco, mm. and secondly, strong alcohol. <laughs> okay, wh- wh- whatever that is. <laughs> so, Carling would be all right then. That would be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but if you think about it, uh, you know, th- the I, th- I think UEFA do have beer sponsors. Is, is it Heineken? Heineken, they- yeah, Heineken. Yeah, yep. Big, so huge sponsors. Um, and I, I remember going to the the Euros uh, in France, and I think they only served uh, either it was either alcohol free or zero point five percent, which 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 my advisors tell me is the equivalent of alcohol free um, beer uh, at, within the stadiums themselves. Um, now, when it comes to um, when it comes to Betway. Uh, I think originally uh, West Ham were using Betway on on some of the matches, and I've certainly seen photographs of Wolverhampton Wanderers who've been sold, who've been sponsored by Manbetx, yep. or yeah, one one of these sort of generic white label. Not quite sure where they're from. Uh, gambling organisations. Well, they're ga- um, they, they used to sponsor Palace. They're gambling, and they're basically a porn website with gambling attached. So okay. two reasons why. A lot of Palace fans weren't that happy about them being our sponsor, but not, as to where they're from, that's a, a moot question. Right, okie dokes. Um, but what, what I understand is that UEFA now have a partnership, and I don't know how recently this was signed, with B Win as their official as, as their official gambling sponsor. Huh. Um, and therefore, um, I think under certain rules that operate within UEFA, and I know that this is the case with with FIFA as well, is that you're not allowed to advertise a rival product because if uh, ah, right. if, uh, if if UEFA have an official car sponsor, uh, let's say it's going to be Audi, then you couldn't potentially have Ford as, as a front of shirt sponsor. So I, I think that it's actually more linked to that than in the case of uh, not having a European contract because, because certainly I, I have, I've seen pictures of, of West Ham in Europe where I'm pretty certain they've they've had the, the Betway uh, logos on the front of their shirts. But um, yeah, I, I did I did see these these particular shirts and, and you know, I'm, we've had this discussion before. I, I'd much rather buy a shirt which which doesn't have a logo on it and that's not because i'm pro or anti the individual sponsor i just like football shirts as football shirts oh god don't get me started on that they're much nicer without the sponsor's name on um speaking of uefa and and speaking of russia as you were at the start have, have uefa made an announcement about their relationship with gazprom uh yes so uefa have terminated the, have. the sponsorship arrangement right. with gazprom um, and it will not be featured on Champions League and Europa League matches uh, for the for the foreseeable future. Oh, okay. Well done, UEFA. Um, <laughs> producer guy, I I think sometimes takes our audience 
intelligence for granted a little bit because there's only so many times, Kieran, I can read out that there are still literally one or two tickets available for our sold-out show at AFC Wimbledon. There were there are literally only one or two extra tickets available last pod, Kieran, and I believe before that there were just a few available. But there are... I will read it again because there are two extra tickets available. We we sold out the first 200, 24th of March, AFC Wimbledon, for our first ever live pod spectacular. Um, and we're having a meeting on Tuesday, I believe, Kieran, via Zoom to discuss the spectacular bits of it. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I think we might be getting a flashing light collar for Finley. Is that right? Just <laughs> oh, that's a good thought, that. Yeah, turn the, turn the lights off. Finley runs around <laughs> in the dark. Uh, or we could train Finley if we, if we do the Q and A in the second part. We, he could pad around with the microphone between his teeth. <laughs> um, but there are a couple of tickets left, and so you go to um, where you're listening to this pod, and there should be a link to how you buy them. If you'd like to make a contribution to our Always Free to Air pod, and that's very kind of you, and you could do so by going to Patreon.com/slash/PriceOfFootball. And if you have any questions for future editions of the pod, it's questions at PriceOfFootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, uh, once again, thanks for all your support for the show. Um, we're, we're genuinely extremely excited at the prospect of meeting some of you uh, at uh, at Plough Lane in, uh, in in less than three weeks, and we've not written anything yet. So, uh, uh, is, is that called improv? No, it's not improv. We, we've got it's it's all. I've written some stuff down. Actually, so don't worry. Oh, okay. There's there's a stru- there's a show. Don't be don't be okay. put, don't be putting people off buying those literally <laughs> one or two tickets. <laughs> Um, but if, if you want to support the show, Patreon is one, um, uh, and and you know uh, just just general engagement is great. Um, but one of the things which which does make a difference, uh, according to uh, producer guy, is that uh, if you could give us a review uh, using your your app, uh, Spotify now do them clearly, Apple do them as well. Um, and uh, yeah, be, be honest, but yeah, if you can give us five stars, by all accounts, apparently it, it helps us in the charts and. Uh, I, I do have a spreadsheet as to where we've been in the charts for every single week since I started the show, <laughs> and, and we're, we're doing okay. Um, but and it and it doesn't matter what you say in the comments. So you, you could say, and, and I would love this to be the case. You would say it was. You would rather have the show presented by Rod Marsh and Shane Warne, two huh. of my all-time heroes. I. I I remember I was 13 years old and I asked Rod Marsh for his autograph wow. and he gave me a little ruffle there. He said, yeah, no, 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 no worries, Sonny. And uh, he, he was just a wonderful cricketer. Clearly, Shane Warne, I think you, you've met Shane, haven't you, you Kevin? And I had a weekend with Shane Warne one night in the So I'm quite touched that between us, we've met Rod Marsh and Shane Warne. Um, yeah, Shane Warne was one of the nicest people I've ever met and, just, I don't remember much about it for obvious reasons, but any night out that if I was Shane Warne and Phil Tufnell, is always going to end up fuzzy. But Shane Warne was delightful and I was genuinely shocked um, to hear of his passing. But I, I tell you what, I would listen to that. I don't normally listen to this podcast, but if it was hosted by Rod Marsh and Shane Warne, I would definitely listen. Yes, absolutely. Okay, folks, so thanks again. Bye-bye.
that provides some photo ball.